832 of the church Bibles today will be Isaiah chapter 42. Uh, real quick, we're going to continue to pray for Adam Placentia's recovery. Sounds like he's doing pretty well, all things considered. Pretty major surgery, and uh, we'll pray he continues to do good there. And uh, 
the doctors will be amazed how well he does because of the Lord. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to mention our daughter, Christy, and her husband, Max. They're bringing a new one into the world this week named Callum, little boy, uh, hopefully on Tuesday morning. So we'll keep them in our prayers this week as we know that every time that's just a complete miracle. Bless the Lord for that. All right. <clears throat> Let's start in verse 5 through 9 of Isaiah 42. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Amen. I actually came across that scripture. It was referred to in Acts. And uh, Paul was teaching in Acts. And he, he quoted, um, I will make you a light to the Gentiles. And bless the Lord he has. Wow, that's us. So. Anyway, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for the time and the privilege it is to come into your house and to give you honor and praise for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for the continuous reminders, Lord, that we see around us that you are the Lord God who created all things, including us and all the things around us. And Lord, help us to always be humble and not be proud of who we are, but always to be reminded of who you are. And, Lord, that you are Lord of lords and King of kings. And, Lord, all these things that our whole lives each day, Lord, should reflect glory to you and not to us as we go through these, these years on the earth. We thank you, Lord, that you would allow your people, your called people, to be a light to the Gentiles, Lord. We bless you for your amazing plan that through your son Jesus uh, we would be grafted into your people. We thank you for that. Thank you for the truth and the strong word you gave Isaiah. Uh, and many, many chapters of Isaiah are so strong, Lord. He was such a strong prophet of yours. Thank you for the truth he gives us to study and to glean. We do lift up uh, Adam. We thank you, Lord, for the successful surgery. Thank you for guiding the surgeon's hands. And we pray, God, you continue to heal his body. And, that, Lord, he would see your hand in that. He would see that... Um, you are the God who saves. You are the God who heals. And I pray, God, he could give testimony to that when he gets through and recovers. Uh, we thank you for um, the miracle of new birth. We pray for Kyle and Lord to get here safely and that you'd be with Christy through the process and help their family adjust, Lord, to another little one. And uh, we pray your blessing over that family. Give them wisdom and courage to be the parents you would call them to be. Uh, we bless you, Lord, for the day. We pray that we honor you with our praise and that your word is proclaimed in a way that does nothing but brings glory to your holy name. We pray, Jesus. Amen.
Well, good morning, my friends. It is awesome to be with y'all today. I am both excited and a bit overwhelmed by this message. Um, excited because I believe the Lord will give us some clarity on perhaps one of the greatest understandings in his word. And overwhelmed because of its spiritual depth and complexity. So turn with me, would you, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 on page 1297. Deborah and I have been studying these verses together and sought to be diligent for our shared understanding because of the significance of these words for not just our congregation, but for God's people. For several weeks, Deborah has been teaching us in Romans in the first four chapters. And we joke about Paul liking run-on sentences and and in some ways seeming to uh, repeat similar things in multiple ways. And that's because the work that God is doing is incredibly intricate. It is comprehensive and ongoing and everlasting. So for Paul, putting these great spiritual understandings into words that we can comprehend is a great task. As we've studied the first four chapters of Romans, um, it's like Paul is helping us with a complex math equation or showing us how pieces of a puzzle fit together. The plan for salvation is a bit like a math equation in that it includes multiple concepts that we must follow and that build upon one another for greater truths. And at the same time, these understandings can be puzzling. And so we're going to have to be willing to kind of move the pieces in our mind to fit God's picture for salvation. So the first thing I want to do is review some of the things that Deborah has been teaching us. And Roger, if you'd put this first slide up. And this is not everything that Deborah has taught us, but some of the big things that we need to see and that we need to be reminded of because they, they build upon one another. And this isn't a perfect chronology of the things that Deborah has taught us, but it is many of the things that we must understand for God's plan of salvation. We can't just accept it and go, wonderful, done. God's plan of salvation is intricate and comprehensive, and it changes us from the inside out for God's purposes. Righteousness is through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Faith is required for salvation. All of us have been given a measure of faith. Righteousness is for those who put this faith in Jesus. Faith is a gift. It is not earned. And so therefore, righteousness cannot be earned. It is a choice and a gift that comes from believing. 
Now, until we receive the gift, we do not have righteousness for which Christ died. Justified means we have been made righteous. And justified means to be just as if we had not sinned. This is a lot of things going on that Christ has accomplished for us to be right and justified and whole with God. Oftentimes we want to pick and choose and pull things out or leave things out. But God, God's plan is God's plan. And we have to receive none of it or all of it. Now, if any of these ideas are a little murky, I encourage you to listen to the messages that have been given over the last few weeks and study in Romans 1 through 4 because this is the bedrock for the faith that we live in. It is the foundation for our continual salvation on this earth. So let's read together with these things in mind. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for one good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. All right. As always, any, any words from Paul are a lot to grab a hold of. But I'll remind you that what Paul's goal here is to convey the truths that the Lord has given him and put them in multiple ways in different understandings that we would grab a hold, that we would have a glimpse of truly and spiritually what has been accomplished on our behalf for salvation. What we read today is a further explanation of what it means for those who have been justified and made righteous. So Roger, if you'd put the next slide up here. Now, what this is, is it helps me to just have kind of an image. An image of what we're reading in these first two verses. We don't want to miss what is going on here. So as we've said, we are justified by faith. 
And I've put a check mark here because we need to see that this has been what Paul has been showing us and teaching and writing to us in these first four chapters. With a lot of words, he builds to this idea that we have been justified by faith. And all that those two words mean for us. So what we're going to read about today are the results and the blessings of being justified by faith. And the result of this justification by faith is that we have peace and we have access to grace. And we're going to read about what qualifies those statements, to have peace and to have grace. Those are great big church words that we like to throw around in all kinds of situations, right? We want to pray for peace whenever we don't have it, and we want God's grace all the time because we need it. But we say those words often in vanity, in selfishness, and in ignorance of all that they mean through God and through Jesus. So let's talk about peace. Verse 1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an incredible statement that we cannot take for granted. This idea of, of peace has significance, great significance for both Jewish ears and also the Gentile audience that the letter of Romans was written to. For the Gentile audience, even just considering peace from a worldly perspective, it has spiritual meaning. In the Roman Empire, there was a 200-year period that you may have heard of called Pax Romana. Pax Romana is the Latin statement that means the peace of Rome. Pax means peace. And so for 200 years... Rome decided they were going to have peace. They were not going to go to war with other countries. So much so that they had to give a name for it and say, we're going to do this because they were surrounded by conflict. They were, for centuries, before and after this period, at war to build an empire and because they had great enemies. The entire first century that we read about the acts of Jesus and his apostles and the letters that we, were, that we read are all in this period of peace. So for Gentiles, they would hear this word peace thinking of what they were getting to experience. Not a nation riddled by death and war and chaos. For the Jewish audience, this word was central to their understanding and their relationship with God. In the New Testament, the Greek word for peace is irene, and in the Old Testament, it is shalom. And these two words, irene and shalom, are used interchangeably, and they are synonymously used throughout Bible translations. In Hebrew, the, the word shalom, it comes from a verb that means complete or whole, and it describes a whole or fully satisfied situation. It's commonly used in scripture as a greeting. They might say, go in peace, or to describe health or safety, being good and not bad, safety and not chaos. 
More seriously, though, it is used to describe a peace accord between enemy nations and as a spiritual antonym, the opposite of chaos or calamity. One of my favorite uses of this word, it gives an idea of what it means to the Lord. So hold your marker here in Romans and turn with me to Leviticus 26, the church's Bible, page 143, Leviticus 26. Here in Leviticus 26, God offers his people shalom if they keep his commandments. We'll read in Leviticus 26, 3. The Lord says, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, now skip down to verse 6, I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. This is an amazing promise, isn't it? We read peace, and we, we put it in whatever context we imagine, but God describes how he desires for peace to be for Israel. That he has delivered them from bondage, from slavery in Egypt that he is leading them to the promised land, and that as he does this, he pours out his way on them. He gives them his instruction and his law, and he says, if you keep these commandments and statutes, it is going to go well for you. Not only will it enrich your lives and will help you to not be hostile towards one another, but it will keep you from being an enemy with me. And I will keep your your land safe and peaceful. I will rid it from evil beasts, and I will keep the sword of your enemy from the land that I'm giving you. Peace was the desire and the goal always for Israel. Peace from war, peace in their land, and peace with God. But unfortunately, their decisions, their rebellion, their sin kept them from remaining in God's peace. So back in Romans chapter 5, Paul says that one of the results and great blessings of our justification is peace. A remarkable thing for both Jew and Gentile to imagine. But this peace is unique from the peace that's mentioned in the Gospels even by Jesus as a a, a thing that they can have as individuals. Peace in their day. Peace from strife. Peace from anxiety. This peace Paul mentions is peace with God. Peace with God. You might not have thought that peace need to be established, needed to be established with God, but oh, it does. Paul describes us in chapter 5 as former enemies of God. 
enemies who are at war with one another unless there is peace. It's not hard to imagine the enmity between nations like Russia and Ukraine, is it? They're enemies, so they're divided, and they are at war. But it is hard to imagine peace between these two parties, isn't it? As we watch the news and as we see the conflict that is ongoing and seems ever-ending, we wonder, how could this conflict really end? If we are in Jesus, peace is not supposed to be optional. It is to be the reality. Scripture, however, does not say that we will have peace with Satan, that we will have peace, excuse me, with the world, or peace with sin. I think sometimes, though, we can, we can get pulled out of alignment with this peace with God. And we can be in league, in relationship with Satan, with the world, and with sin. What the Lord has highlighted to me in peace is that it is his desire for us. We think so often, what, what is God's desire for me? What is his will for my life? And we imagine the things that are good for us physically. But God's desire for us, his heart for us, is peace. It's a telltale sign for us, then, if we're not at peace with him. We should look for where we might be out of alignment with his ways. Next, we read in verse 2 about this second blessing, that is grace. Oh, what an amazing result and blessing for being justified by faith. Read verse 2 with me. Paul says, Through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now this is a pretty full sentence, so let's break this apart phrase by phrase. Through whom, this means through Jesus, of course, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Simply put, grace is a good thing that is not deserved. What we deserve because of our sin is God's judgment and wrath. Instead, we've been given God's grace. Similar to peace, the idea of grace is well established in Scripture and it has great meaning for us. Throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as being gracious. It's interesting, though. God's grace is not an attribute like his omniscience, his all-knowing, or his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. Grace is specifically connected to the fact that mankind is fallen and sinful and therefore deserve the judgment and wrath of God. That means that God's grace is a response. It is an action of God's love. 
Turn with me to Exodus 34, the church's Bible, page 101. Exodus chapter 34, page 101. In Exodus 34, we'll read how the Lord passes before Moses at Mount Sinai. Let's read verses 6 and 7. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So here the Lord describes himself as merciful and gracious, two words that have a very similar meaning. But the reason the Lord said this is because of human sin and rebellion. Although justice is warranted because of God's holiness, He shows unmerited favor towards those who do not deserve it. Do you see that in these verses? That the Lord needs to to tell Moses that this is how he is, but why? We have throughout the history of God's people in the Old Testament an illustration of his grace. So it's peculiar that grace is often redefined by readers of the New Testament as a get-out-of-jail-free card. A theology of grace has been developed independent of the context of the Old Testament. It has been reimagined to suit our own needs. A defense to remain in sin. The idea that everyone sins, so thank goodness for grace. The belief that God's God's ways in the law are obsolete and have been done away with because grace covers us. I believe this same false teaching is what Israel fell into. This assumption that God's love is so great that it would cover them, and that surely God would not punish his people. If anything, we should understand from the history of God's graciousness is that we should not misunderstand it or take it for granted. So what then is grace? If grace is not what We have imagined it to be this great get-out-of-jail-free card for our use and purpose whenever we desire to kind of go on holiday from following the Lord's ways. What then is this great grace that we read about here? Because Paul uses it some 80 times in his letters. The word that the Lord gave to Deborah years ago for this word grace is his plan. 
Grace is God's plan for salvation. If you think about it, that makes incredible sense because the nature of God's plans have always been good in that they draw us to him. The sacrifices in the law were given in order to restore man's right standing with God. The covenants were given in order to make peace and commitment between two divided parties. Just as the new covenant did not do away with the former covenants, the grace we receive through Jesus does not do away with God's gracious nature, but it fills it up. Grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card to swipe whenever we need to cover the charges. Instead, grace is the fullness of God's plan through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, for our salvation and redemption for God's purpose. One of my favorite aspects of this understanding here in Romans 5 is in verse 2. It, it says, the grace in which we stand. What's going on in the Greek language is called a perfect participle. That means the standing in God's grace is not a one-time thing. It's not a pass that we pull out, but that we are to remain in this grace ongoing and for eternity. It is like a journey. What that means to me is that, that we are to be according to God's plan forever. If we think about God's plan for us being continuous, it should change everything. If we understand God's grace this way, then we won't desire a twisted, a cheap, and self-serving defensive loophole for our wants or desires or sin. Instead, we'll understand and embrace what Paul says in the second half of Romans 5.2, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our actions will be like a well of water springing up everlasting life to the glory of God always. See, if we pull grace out from the context of who God is, then it is something that we control and we enact when we want it to cover our tracks. But since grace was never meant to be that, but instead in the context of God's character, that grace is his plan, that we would be unified with him, this grace is ongoing for God's glory. Paul explains it a little bit further in verses 3 through 5. Let's read together. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is still real life that Paul is describing. 
right? Grace is thrown around as if we live in a different world than the rest of those who are out of Christ Jesus, as if everything is just okay because of grace. Paul reminds us that we still live in real life just like a soldier has to go to war and a sailor goes to sea. We are still living in the world, but we're on the other side of things. And on the other side of things, in a relationship with God, we are to be in peace and in this grace as God does all things according to his plan. Next, Paul is going to tell us in the next verses, he's going to explain it another way. He's going to take another approach that's not different, but it is complementary. Let's read verses 6 through 11. He's going to tell us that the, the best is yet to come for those who are in Christ. Verse 6, he says, For when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God, through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we will be, that, excuse me, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. The big word in this passage is reconciliation. It's used only a few times in the New Testament and all by Paul. The act of reconciling, it describes how two parties come together to the same position. I don't think what it means is that God is coming to us, but instead that God has done his part that we might be reconciled and come to him. To me, this is a, a single idea that describes what he's just told us, accomplished peace and grace. Paul's point here is to tell us how much more there is in store. Oftentimes we, we reach this check mark of salvation and we feel like we've gotten the t-shirt that we needed. Done deal. We're safe until, you know, Jesus returns and then we'll get to be in heaven. Paul's telling us there are greater things in store. He says in verse 10 that as enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. So reconciled is important here. And that we were reconciled while we were enemies. We've got to see that. Until we're reconciled to God, we are enemies of him. So if he has reconciled us as enemies through his death, much more, he says, are we reconciled and will we be saved by Jesus' life? It, it, it's his two contrasting ideas, that of an enemy and now a friend, and that of what's been done by Jesus' death and even more so by his life. 
Through his death, we have been justified, and through his life, we will be saved. Notice the future tense here, that salvation is something that will happen. Elsewhere in scripture, it's used, yes, as something that happens when we begin to believe in Jesus. But it is also something that will happen. See, what Paul wants us to do is to to understand these pieces together, not just as one for our kind of manipulation and personal use, but understanding them in our proper place. We can't just focus our eyes on salvation. We've got to first walk through this justification. Now verse 11. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through whom our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Paul tells us that the result of God's reconciling is reconciliation. And that makes sense. But this word reconciliation is a result word. And so its meaning is a little bit different even. Reconciliation means very, very simply, restoration to favor. That is the heart of our God for us. That we would be restored to favor in him. My friends, what an awesome God that we serve. An awesome God who has had a plan for his purpose before the foundation of the world. Knowing who we would be. Knowing that we would be fallen and sinful. And that we would be delivered and return to fallenness and sinfulness. But God's plan is for us to remain in peace with him. We must recognize the peace, the grace, and the reconciliation that the Lord desires for each of us for eternity. I pray today that if you are out of peace with him, if you are outside this plan of grace, if you are out of his favor and need to be reconciled, that you would not remain where you're at. I pray that we would be changed by these words and not settle for our interpretation of the Savior's plan, but seek this grace in which we stand. Amen. Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus and live. Now 
your burdens lifted and carried far away and precious blood has washed away the stain so sing to Jesus sing to Jesus sing to Jesus and live and like a newborn baby Sometimes we fall, so fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus, and live. Sometimes the way is lonely, it's steep and filled with pain. So if your sky is dark and pours the rain, then cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus. Jesus, fly to Jesus.